Well, good morning. How are you doing? Well, good, good, good. Hey, about, uh, I guess it was about six or seven months ago, my wife came to me and she said, hey, there is a series you have to do. And she doesn't often say this, but she said, yeah, you gotta do this series. It's kind of this breaking free idea and it's on the Pharisees. And she kept saying, hey, you need to do this series. And so I realized there's probably something she wants me to get out of this series about the Pharisees. So I invite you to join me for the next five weeks. And uh, the, the Pharisees were the prominent religious group of Jesus' day. And you might be going, hey, why are we doing this series besides the fact that your wife told you to do this series? And here's what really stuck out to me as I was preparing for this. Do you know that Jesus spends a third of his teaching, his time, and his sermon addressed to this group called the Pharisees? And what he wants to make sure is that we now do not fall prey or fall into the same pitfalls that the Pharisees did. Thus today, what we're gonna be looking at is breaking free from any of the things that Jesus has to speak about, and today it's breaking free from the traditions of man and the preferences of man. Uh, we're gonna be in Mark chapter seven, verses one through 22, so you can follow along, but really this is what Jesus is going to speak about, breaking free from the traditions of man. Now there's a book by uh, Philip Yancey, it's called Where the Light Fell. And in this book, he actually speaks about how there is a gap sometimes between what the church focuses on and the needs of the world. And he tells this story about this leader of this prominent Christian college, and she spent a few days actually preparing for a party. And what she did was she got those little candy Valentine's hearts, you know what I'm talking about, that have those phrases on them? And some of them say things like, hug me, or I like you, and then there's some more provocative ones like lover boy or hot lips on there as well. And so he tells this story that she spends a few afternoons actually taking with a white glove, she takes those candy hearts and she has a clean pile where if it's appropriate, like I like you, or hi, then she will put it in the pile. But if it's too provocative, if it's a phrase like lover boy or hot lips or hot stuff, she discarded it in the trash can. And he said that, that as he experienced this, he thought this was like a modern day parable. That literally the world is on fire. There are people who are in need of the hope and the life of Jesus. And people who have the antidote, what it seems like they are doing or what they're most concerned about is weeding out and censoring certain phrases like hot lips and lover boy. And then he goes on to say this. He says this phrase, this is not what Jesus had in mind. And the passage we're gonna be looking at in Mark chapter seven really could be summed up with that same phrase. If you were to say, what is Jesus trying to say to the Pharisees? What is he trying to say to us nowadays? You could actually sum it up with the exact same phrase that this is not what Jesus had in mind. That in essence, what the Pharisees were focused on wasn't evil, but there's a gap between what Jesus is concerned about, what Jesus is focused on, what the kingdom is about, and what the Pharisees are focused and concerned on. And so in essence, he's going to unpack this and help us understand. Because religion, when it is applied the wrong way, can be absolutely damaging. There are some people who, even in this room, maybe you're here, you don't know Jesus, or if you're honest in your story, the way that you saw religion worked out in your family or friends wasn't actually something that drew you to the faith, it was something that repelled you. And what Jesus is gonna speak about is if you apply faith the wrong way, it can be absolutely damaging to those around. Listen to what Dallas Willard says. He says, how many people are radically and permanently repelled from the way by Christians who are unfeeling, stiff, unapproachable, boringly lifeless, obsessive, and dissatisfied? And I love this phrase. 
Spirituality wrongly understood or pursued is a major source of human misery and rebelling against God. Let me say that phrase again. Spirituality wrongly understood or pursued is a major source of human misery and rebelling against God. So what you're gonna find as we unpack this is that Jesus is actually gonna speak about the way the Pharisees, the prominent religious group of Jesus' day, is actually applying the word of God and what they're doing. Now it's important to know this, you'll see on the side, the screen behind me rather, there are four really groups of Jesus' day when it comes to Judaism. So first you have the Sadducees. This was a group of people who were kinda like the cultural elite of Jesus' day. And really what their primary role was is to keep harmony between the Romans and the people of God, to keep harmony between the Romans and Judaism. But in doing so, they really became known, even by the Romans, for two things. One, being culturally elite, and second, actually compromise. And that leads to that next group, the Essenes. They were, in essence, people who were so frustrated by what they felt like was moral compromise of certain people that they actually broke away and lived in the wilderness. You might have heard phrases like desert fathers or mothers. These are a group of people that basically said, hey, we see the way faith is heading, and we have to actually pull away. And so they were really known as separatists. But then there's a whole other group of people. These are zealots. They hated Rome and anything Roman. And, and really, what they were, they were an intense group of people. They would do anything to see political power move forward, and they would even, they weren't opposed to violence, anger, or yelling. I mean, they're kind of like your modern-day Philadelphia Eagle fans. I'm just saying, all right? Amen. Amen. Yes, indeed. But then you have another group, and the reason I show you this is what's interesting is, if you're anything like me, when my wife said, talk about the Pharisees, you just have this feeling if you've grown up in church, like, oh, the Pharisees, those people. But what you gotta understand is when you look at these four groups of people, the Pharisees were actually the most thoughtful of all the groups of people. They were the ones who actually did not believe that the kingdom of God should move forth by political power. And when you read about the Pharisees, you realize that they weren't in the Old Testament, then all of a sudden, Jesus spends a third of his ministry speaking about the Pharisees. So where did they come from? Well, in the intertestament period, basically between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are 400 years of silence. 400 years where you don't really have prophets of God, words of God that are actually moving forth in the community. So do you think in a season where it feels like God is silent for 400 years, there would be spiritual flourishing or spiritual decline? It'd be spiritual decline. So what happens is this group of Pharisees actually came on the scene out of a good season of trying to bring people back to the commandments of God and calling people to return to God. That's where they came from. So in essence, these were people who, who were thoughtful. They were mindful of the king. And during Jesus' day, there are about 11,000 Pharisees that are in different uh, towns or villages. And what I want you to get, because if you miss this, you're just gonna kind of tune out and go, oh yeah, those people. But what I want you to know is that we often throw the Pharisees under the bus. But what I want you to see is that your beliefs are what I believe most of you believe and what I believe and what our church believes would make us prime candidates for this group called the Pharisees. So in essence, what Jesus wants us to be aware is that is not something out there. He wants us to become aware so that if there's anything in us like the Pharisees, we might break free from those things and find the life of Jesus. And here's what I want you to understand. The Pharisees actually believed a lot of the same stuff that you and I would have believed in that day. For instance, you'll see four things. They actually believed the Messiah was coming. They believed in the entire Old Testament. 
They believed there would be a resurrection from the dead, which some of the other groups did not believe. And then they wanted people to return to God and keep his commandments. They had a theology at the time of Jesus that was most like his. But the way they applied it, the things they focused on deeply grieved Jesus. And the greatest threat to the New Testament church was not immorality in Jesus' day. It was this kind of legalism where people are elevating things that aren't the priority, aren't the, fi- the focus, aren't what Jesus is about. They're not evil things. But they're, the, they're not the things that the kingdom of God is most concerned about. And so in essence, what Jesus' critique of them in these 22 verses is literally, this is what he says. He says, you're hypocrites that you're not focusing on what I had in mind. And in essence, what's happening is, uh, in, in Mark chapter seven, six, he replies like this. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. So why is he calling them hypocrites? Because in essence, what they were doing is they were elevating the traditions of man, the preferences of man over the commands of God. That in essence, what they were doing is they were doing all the right things on the outside, but you'll find out their hearts were distant and cold towards the love and the mercy of God. And what they were elevating that Jesus calls them a hypocrite in this passage is they were elevating this practice of ceremonial washing. And this is not about like hygiene. They're not getting upset because the disciples have bad hygiene. It's actually about this tradition of ceremonial washing, and we know that from verse three. Listen to what it says. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a what? A ceremonial washing, holding to the traditions of the elders. Just to make this clear, this is a form of of tradition. Jesus goes on and it says this in verse five. So the Pharisees and the teachers of law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to what? The tradition of the elders instead of eating food with defiled hands. So where this comes from is in the Old Testament, there was a high priest who went in the temple and he would make a sacrifice for the people of God. And there was this like this bronze basin where he would do this ceremonial washing. And one, it was a hygiene thing, but the other thing was to be ritually pure. So all of a sudden the Pharisees decide, you know what, we don't think this should just be for the high priest, We want everybody to do this. And so they decided to create a tradition that not just the high priest, but everybody in the community was supposed to engage in this ceremonial washing. In fact, after the destruction of the temple in AD 70, they said, in essence, the table where everyone eats will now be your temple. So whoever eats, which is everyone, has to engage in this ceremonial washing where they would wash their hands multiple times and they literally had to recite this phrase. Blessed be thou, O Lord, King of the universe, who sanctified us by laws and commands us to wash our hands. Again, this is what they, they would literally have to wash their hands. Blessed be thou, O Lord, King of the universe, who sanctified us by laws and commands us to wash our hands. That sounds like something a potty training mother would tell their kids to instill fear, right? But this is what the Pharisees were serious about. In fact, what's so interesting about this, there was a rabbi who did not engage in this ceremonial practice correctly, and he was excommunicated from the church. Not reprimanded, he was literally kicked out of the church because he did not engage this practice the way that they thought. 
There's a story of another rabbi who basically said, whoever does not engage in this practice of washing their hands sinneth as much as someone who lies with a harlot. There's another story of a rabbi who, who got some confusion with the Roman officer. He was imprisoned. And basically, the Romans gave them a ration of water. And what he did was he took that ration of water and instead of drinking it, he used it for this ceremonial washing and almost died of thirst. And he was deemed by, by his fellow Jews as a hero for what he was doing. So in essence, what Jesus is saying is that you're elevating certain things. And let me just make this point. That, that what they're doing wasn't evil. In fact, what they were doing was they thought they were being devoted to God. But can I just say this? A good thing with wrong motives becomes a destructive thing. A good thing with wrong motives can become a destructive thing. Take, take like working out, for instance. You know, a lot of people will go, hey, you know what? I need to work out. I want to steward the temple. I want to get healthy. But, you know, there are people that they start that way and then they become hyper obsessed with their body. They work out 24 7. It increases vanity in them and concern. And so, this good thing with wrong motives actually can become destructive. Take something like feedback. You know, like there are people who go, hey, I just want to meet with you and give you some feedback. And half the time in your mind, you're like, sure you do. Because we've all been recipients of people who say they want to come meet with a good thing and give feedback, but really what they have is a wrong motive. They have pain in their life, or they have some sort of hurt, or they'll say under the guise of reconciliation, but really what happens is they just kind of want to stick the knife in a little bit. And many of you, you're in this room and you're carrying some feedback you receive from someone with wrong motives and it's destructive. You still carry that from a parent or a coworker. But I would imagine that everyone that's in this room has also had some people who said, I wanna give you some feedback and their motives are right. And what they did was they wanted to make us aware of something and I can tell you multiple people who have really transformed the trajectory of my life because they cared enough to have an awkward conversation or to risk my feelings, but it was good, and what did it bring? Flourishing. So in essence, a good thing with a wrong motive can be destructing, but a good thing with the right motive can be absolutely powerful. Why do I tell you this? Because when it comes to faith, you can have a good thing like God's love, but isn't it interesting if you have a wrong motive where people go, hey, you know what? Like, God loves me, but what he wants most is my happiness. That does not create flourishing, it actually creates destruction. I know people right now who, who think that really what God is most interested in is their happiness. God loves you, buddy. What he wants is your holiness. And when you're holy, what you find is happiness. Because what happens in the middle of life is whoever says, you know what, God just loves me and he wants me to be free. And then they pursue whatever path they want. What you find is they do not have flourishing. People who chase happiness in this world, they don't walk away actually feeling more happy, they feel more confined. And in Christianity, what happens is a lot of people think God's a roadblock because they go, it just feels restrictive. But then all of a sudden, you get around and you understand God is not restrictive. It's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. In essence, he loves you enough to go, hey, you're giving your life to that lesser thing. See, God never calls you to leave something behind unless he calls you to a greater thing, and that greater thing is himself. So God's motives are good. But when you see that, people take a good thing with wrong motives, it can be destructive. Take the church. What we gotta understand what, what I think is happening here is when people come into the church, which is the bride of Christ, and they have wrong motives, when preferences and traditions and wants get elevated above everything else, it becomes destructive. 
and we start to project things about the way the church should be done. And this is what's happening in this text. It starts off with a good thing, but there's a wrong motive, and Jesus goes, it's destructive. Because you're taking a practice like ceremonial washing, which again is a tradition. God never commanded it. And then what Jesus has to say is that he says to the Pharisees, you're elevating a tradition over a command of God that you're neglecting. And you go, well, what is that command of God? Verse 10, Jesus says it. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. Now, that is a direct quotation from Exodus 20, 12 and Deuteronomy 5, 16, where there is a biblical command not to curse your mother and father. And remember the Ten Commandments, what one of them is? Honor who? Your mother and father. And so in essence, what happens is this was a command in the scriptures by God, but some of the Pharisees found a loophole. Notice that phrase, korban, and really what that is, if you think about it, it was a term they used, think about it like a tax-exempt term. So in essence, the Pharisees would say, hey, whatever money I have, I don't have to obey this command because in essence, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna use it for biblical purposes. I'm gonna use it for God and the temple. So I don't have to take care of my mother or my father, I'm exempt from this command. And Jesus goes, you hypocrites. You are projecting onto people this heavy burden of a tradition you have, and then you're neglecting a command that I have for you. And so in essence, this is what he's trying to make us aware of. Years ago, I had someone sit down with me. Uh, it was someone I worked with, and she said, hey, can I, can I just sit down with you? And she used that feedback term. So I just wanna give you some feedback. I said, sure. And we sat down and there was no small talk. I'll never forget it. She just sits down with me and she says, hey, I just want you to know, I just wanna go out and say you're a hypocrite. And I was like, all right, tell me how you really feel. And I'm telling you, this was someone who, who is known a little bit for being um, a bit of a bulldog. She would say what is, whatever was on her mind. And so in my heart, when she comes in that strong, I'm going, all right, I'm gonna teach her a lesson. And right when I'm about to do that, the Holy Spirit just says, Brian, silence. And literally, not a good thing, but I'm like, all right, be silent first, crush later, I got it, I'm gonna listen. <laughs> and so she starts speaking, and it's just like all of a sudden, she says, yeah, you're a hypocrite. And she says, you know, the last few times we've been late to meetings, you've called us out publicly, you've gotten frustrated, you want us to go to this higher standard, but do you know you are probably the most tardy person on staff? And whenever you walk into a meeting, guess what it is? There's an excuse. Someone needed to hear about Jesus. You came from some conflict meeting, but whatever we say, we just don't respect you. And I'm telling you, as they said that, I would like to tell you that happened when I was 14 years old. That was several years ago. And I'm telling you, it was like the scales fell off my eyes. And all of a sudden, I was so aware of this area of hypocrisy in my life. The reason I tell you this is when we do a series like this, the moment you hear about Pharisees, most of us in the room are going, oh, I really hope he hears that. I really hope she hears that. But what I want you to be aware of as we do this series is that this is not a, a sermon series for us to go, God, please shine the spotlight on that particular person. It is an opportunity for us to become aware of blind spots in our own hearts and our own lives that Jesus might be going, hey, this is some area that your discipleship is not complete until you deal with this. And so as you talk about something like the tradition and preferences of man, what are some blind spots that people might have? How do we make sure we do this the right way? Let me just give you a couple practical things 
First is do not project your traditions or preferences onto everyone else. It's important to know this. Doesn't matter your age, doesn't matter if you're a teenager, doesn't matter if you are a senior adult, we all have preferences and traditions. You have preferences and traditions, you have nighttime rituals. Uh, Most of us have morning preferences or rituals. We have preferences or traditions we do at holidays and summer traditions. And so it's important to know that all of us will bring certain preferences and traditions into the church And we gotta be careful not to moralize or project those onto other people. I mean, think about how many different subjects people leave the church because of. I mean, people leave the church all the time because of music styles and music volumes, expository preaching versus topical preaching, the ways you do communion, the clothes that a church wears, how much I'm entertained because I want enough truth, but I also wanna have some fun as well. The way the church approaches baptism, People leave churches because they don't like the way the ministry budgets are allocated. People leave churches because it addresses cultural issues or because it doesn't address enough cultural issues. People leave church because they are too outreach driven and others because they are not outreach driven enough. Every pastor that I talked to from COVID said we literally had people leave because no matter what we did, some thought we were too liberal in our response and others thought we were too conservative. And so in essence, what Jesus is saying is these are not bad things. But you know that story about the woman with the white glove? I wonder if when Jesus thinks about the church and the last few years, what we've seen, it feels like what Christians the last couple years are most concerned about is what are my rights or what's gonna happen with certain gun laws? Do I have to wear a mask or do I not have to wear a mask? And what political leader is going to be in power? And I wonder if Jesus is just going, church, this is not what I had in mind. And he's not trying to condemn us and beat us down. He's just going, hey, you can focus on this thing and miss the significance of what matters most. And my heart has had to repent from these things. As a pastor, I just find myself getting focused on all the things that in the grand scheme of eternity, Jesus is just going, this is not what I had in mind. We all have preferences and traditions. And we bring those into the church. And what happens if you're anything like me, the moment the church doesn't do whatever preference or tradition we like, we start to critique. And some of you have done that during my sermon today as well. And I can't judge you because literally, a couple months ago, I was in a church service. And I was uh, at a different church. I was going, and this pastor was preaching. And I'm telling you, I was sitting in there. I thought I was just, you know, I had no biases or prejudice or traditions that I had at all. I would have heard things like the Pharisees and God, not me at all. And I'm literally sitting in this church service and the preacher is just talking so slow. And he's saying phrases like this, do you know God loves you? And he's going, we need, it's literally, We need the fire of God. In that tone, we need the fire of God. And I am sitting here going, would this just give some passion to this guy? And I'm projecting all of the ways that he should preach. I'm like, God, when did your chosen become frozen? I mean, I'm just arguing in my head. Because in my mind, there is a way to preach. And saying phrases like, God loves you, and you matter, was not the way to preach. Get done with that sermon. The guy says, hey, I want people who need to do business with God to respond. My cynical brain goes, no way, no way. No one's going to respond to God with that kind of tone. All of a sudden, some people start responding, and the Holy Spirit, 
waited till the entire message. He didn't even reveal my cynicism five minutes in. He waited till 35 minutes in to go, you're that person. And I'm telling you, I remember where I was sitting and I just said, Jesus, I repent of that and I will no longer moralize my preferences on how preaching should be done. You know what, when you start to think like that, verses like Mark 7, 7 aren't just for those Pharisees out there. Listen to what it says. Those people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. There are times I have walked into a church service, and dare I say, and project it onto you as well, there are times you and I have walked into a church service, and we have sang songs like, I surrender it all, tear down my religion, and we are giving nothing more than lip service because our hearts are not soft towards God. And we do all these exterior things, but when it comes to mercy and kindness and gentleness and the fruit of the Spirit, how are we really doing? Because in essence, what Jesus says is you can do all the things on the outside, but where is your heart? Where is it at? See, we talk a lot about converting Christians who aren't followers of Jesus, but maybe one of the things that needs to happen is that Jesus needs to convert people who are followers of Jesus back to being followers of Jesus again. And he needs to tear down those walls and make our hearts so sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And maybe like me, there are people who've sat in church services, and I'm not projecting because this is me, but who have just sat in church services and you might need to go, Jesus, I repent of this and I want to come back to the heart of worship, which is only about you and Christ formed in me because it is one thing to talk about the love of God. It is another to guard your heart in such a way in this culture where cynicism and negativity and worry do not become your default function. You know one of the greatest miracles, sincerely, what, what most moves me is a Christian who has been following Jesus for 40 years and their heart still beats for him and has kindness and gentleness and as the difficulties of life have happened, they are no longer bitter. They're just in love with Jesus and they have a love for other people. That phrase of loving God and loving others might be the most difficult phrase. To truly be at the place where you go, it's him alone. And this love flows through. So we gotta be people who do not project our preferences or our priorities on other people. And then here's the other one, very simple. We have to prioritize what matters most. So I can't project onto you my preferences of styles of preaching or other things, but we've also gotta be people who prioritize what matters most. And really what that is is Christ formed in us. And Jesus is saying, hey, if you're not careful, the, these traditions become the major thing and what happens is you start, you start majoring in the minors. And you're not majoring on justice and mercy. And that's actually one of Jesus' critiques to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 23 through 24. Listen to this. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Don't you just wish Jesus was more honest about what he feels sometimes? <laughs> but literally what he says here, you know, notice he says a tenth of your spices. The Pharisees, what they would do, they were particular. They would literally take all of their spices, their herbs, their garden herbs, their mint, and they would, with this scale, they would measure it out to the exact amount, 10%. And then they would go into the temple and they would present these herbs and these spices as part of their offering. 
But notice what Jesus says. He says you swallow a gnat, uh, or you, you strain a gnat, and then you have a camel that you swallow here. And you go, what is he talking about? Well, in Hebrew culture, the Pharisees believed the smallest unclean animal was actually a gnat. And the largest unclean animal was actually a camel. So do you see what Jesus is saying here? You are literally putting all this emphasis on these traditions and these things like bringing a tenth of your spices, but you have neglected the mercy of God. You have neglected the justice of God that people need to see. You have neglected faithfulness because your heart as you come into worship services is not sensitive towards me. Your mind is in a million different places and so in essence what Jesus is saying is what do you think matters most? Music styles, preaching styles, dress, herbs and spices or the justice of God, the mercy of God the faithfulness of God. And Jesus is going, hey, if you're not careful, all of us will have to break free from this of not being able to see and prioritize not what's evil. Jesus doesn't tell the Pharisees to stop giving 10%. He says, just focus on what matters most. Elevate and prioritize the kingdom of God above all. You know, there, there was one of the most famous plane crashes or one of the most well-known plane crashes was actually a flight uh, on Eastern Airlines, it was 1972, it was flight uh, 401, and, uh, and they were getting ready to land. On this particular flight, they were going from JFK to Miami, and all of a sudden, as the pilot was, was flying, he noticed that there was this light bulb that came on, and it was to the landing gear. And so in essence, this, this pilot started going to the co-pilot, hey, I don't know if this is the landing gear or if we just have a bad bulb, and so they, just, they start discussing it. The pilot starts telling the co-pilot to look, and so he's trying to look out the window to see, but he can't see. All of a sudden, they're not landing at the right time, so a couple of the cabin workers come in, and they say, hey, what's going on? And they say, hey, we have this light bulb that's on, and we don't know if it's the, the, the actual, you know, ground's not gonna land, we, we've got this stuff going on, or we got a bulb issue. It's a landing gear or whatever it is. Then he gets on the radio to the tower, and he says, hey, we've got this, uh, light bulb on and we don't know if it's the landing gear or the bulb and right when he begins to discuss he forgets something very important flying the plane and he crashes and 101 people are killed in that moment the reason I tell you that is that what mattered most for that pilot was flying that airplane and there were other people that could have focused on those other things and what I believe Jesus is saying is what matters most is for us as Christians to not get off course there are these little lesser things that do matter, but what happens is we are supposed to be about the mission of God. In fact, can I just say this and then we'll close with communion. I was reading this the other day. Do you know that there are 1.2 million teenagers and kids that will leave the faith this year? It is one of the largest demographics, 1.2 million. Now, if you're anything like me, that burdens me. Frankly, I don't know what to do with it. And, and you go, what is the obligation that, that those of us in the church who love Jesus, what are we supposed to do? And I can't tell you I have it all figured out, but here's what I know. Is I believe that when a generation is falling away from the church, the greatest thing for me to focus on is not, was it a literal six-day creation? And what is your view of end times? You know, with COVID, there are more marriages that have fallen apart than ever before. People are just hurting and grieving. I mean, there are people that you know that are even in this room and you're wondering if God good or exists and can I just tell you, I don't know how to fix all that. I don't know how to carry all the weight of the world but I do know that one of the things that Jesus 
is most interested is not me to bring a checklist of what church should be about, my preferences and my styles. What he's looking is for people who are focused on mercy and justice and the faithfulness of God in such a radical way. And so if you're anything like me, I love this sermon and I hated it. And I'm, I, I'm just asking you to pray about what it is that God might be calling you to do. And as we close, I could think of no better way, we'll be done in a couple minutes, but of closing out with the Lord's Supper as a reminder to get our eyes back on what matters most, which is Christ formed in us. And what Jesus did is he did the unthinkable and he took a couple of household elements. One that was a symbol of his body that was broken and the other, which was a cup of wine which symbolized his blood that was poured out. And so what I want you to do is if you will take out, if you have this, take out this bread which symbolizes Jesus' body which is broken for us. And what I want you to think about as you take this is this is a reminder of God's love for you. The gospel is not that you are just loved, it's that you are liked. You can grow up in church your whole life and sing about the love of God and not have it move from your head to your heart. Whether you feel close to God or whether you feel distant, can I remind you, the reason Jesus paid every last drop of his blood and his body was broken was his love for you this morning. May you take, eat, and be reminded of the greatest love on planet Earth that Jesus' body was broken for you. And then Jesus took this cup, which was a symbol of his blood that was shed for us. And this is a reminder that the blood of Jesus wasn't just shed for us to sing songs and come in here, but it was shed so that everyone around you would know the great depths of God's love for them. Who in your life has God placed at an intersection that needs to know the love of God? As you take this cup as a reminder of his blood that was shed for you, let's be people that don't miss and prioritize the writer thing. Jesus says that he didn't come for the healthy, but he came for the sick. So once the love of God gets in us, it should always move us towards those who are hurting. So let's be reminded as we take and drink that Jesus' blood was shed for those who are hurting and in need. Take, drink. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for today. And we know today is a, it's a weighty subject to talk about your heart and breaking free from those things. And so God, I just pray as we all have traditions and preferences that you would allow us to break free so that our discipleship to you would be more complete. God, we love you. We thank you that no matter where we are, your love is transformative and real and rich. And I pray that love over everybody today that they would know the depths of your love for them in radical ways. King Jesus, we love you. It's in your mighty, wonderful, amazing name we pray. Amen. Hey, you guys are dismissed. Hope you have a wonderful day. If you need prayer, if you need to connect with anybody, you can go back uh, to the next step room, and uh, we'll see you next week. Blessings to you.